Oh, somebody's got a microphone. She said, would you like me? She goes, I, I do know a bit about sound and lighting. Would you like me to get a microphone? I'm like, yes. And then they turned off these lights. Is there a reason why they turned off the lights? Washing the screen. Ah, okay. You are the best. We'll check it first. Hello, hello. Okay, grab your seats. Go ahead and grab your seats. We're going to get started. That helps, actually. We do need this. It's too big of a group for me to just do it this way. Yes, actually, that would be good. Okay, let's go ahead and keep going here. Because, you know, the mind can only take in as much as the butt can handle, so they say, right? So breaks are very important, and I'm not always aware of that. <clears throat> so reminders are good. And I just wanted to point out that if you have questions about Rejoice Always and where to get it, there's at this point, uh, you either buy it used somewhere on some site, or you go on to IPI, which is the Illumination Publishers, and you can only get it electronically. Uh, so it's, it's, unless you buy a used copy, that's the only way you can get the hardback right now. It needs to be redone, but you can do it electronically on IPI. Okay, let's jump in. Are there examples of mental health issues in the Bible? Well, with Saul, <clears throat> it says that he was having issues with somebody not nice visiting his, his person. And when the evil spirit from God comes to you, he'll, he's, they say, let's find somebody who can strum a tune and you'll feel better. And that's what David did. So David would help King Saul by playing on the lyre. And Saul got relief from his terror and felt better. Isn't that interesting? So if you're a music therapist or you know someone's a music therapist, I think this is the earliest recording in history of music therapy. I, I, uh, I actually do use music in therapy, especially when I'm working with adolescents. I ran a, um, a drumming group therapy in, for incarcerated youth in the prisons here. So their music is very helpful. We know that. That's why I tell people to make sure you're listening to it and singing to it and so on in your own care. Uh, David. Okay, so it literally says he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in the hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. He did a pretty good job, right? Uh, so we do, most of the scriptures talk about madness and madmen. So my heart, and this is David's words in Psalms, several places, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered, I forget to eat my bread. What does that sound like? Depression. Depression. Right? Actually, I, that was one of the early questions I ask is, how's your appetite? How's your sleeping? How are, how's your motivation in life? Those are signs of depression. Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from the people and ate grass like an ox. His, bo his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. And his boy, he just really had a tough time here. And he raised his, and he says, this is Nebuchadnezzar talking here later in Daniel. I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Now, that's just interesting. Okay, it's mentioned in the scriptures. Jeremiah, now, this is what he says and how he feels. He says, cursed be the day I was born. Jeremiah is known as, in some uh, readings, as the prophet that absolutely, you know, struggled with depression. It looks like it. Um, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Okay, these are words we know, trouble, sorrow, shame. You know, why was I born? What am I here for? 
right? Um, the demon-possessed man, for a long time, he hadn't worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Who does that sound like? Our homeless population, right? Um, which we know there's a lot of mental health problems in that, in that um, population. Though he is chained hand and feet and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by a demon. So we have a lot of questions. Is, it, is all of these examples of demon possession or is it mental health issues? Well, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I'm going to ask Jesus and God that when I get to heaven. <clears throat> Look at Jesus. What did his own family say? When his family heard about this, about what he was doing, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. Okay, so they thought, which we know he wasn't, but they thought, oh, he's out of his mind. He's got some mental health problems, right? If you could say it in today's language. Um, so how do the scriptures mention mental health? In Deuteronomy, it says um, the Lord will inflict you with madness, blindness, and mental confusion. He actually says that some of the um, consequences of not choosing to obey him. Look at those words. He will inflict, you know, I don't know that I would use this on somebody. Be careful with these scriptures. You know what? You're full of madness and mental health issues because I think let God decide that. But I'm just pointing it. Don't ever use these scriptures as a weapon. But I am just pointing out the fact that the Bible mentions mental health issues. The sights you will see will drive you mad. The Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. When we follow God, it deals big time with a lot of these things. Okay, so we know that. Uh, surely he has borne our grief. We know grief is, there's all kinds of scriptures on grief in the Bible. I, this is Jonah's words. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. My life was slipping away. When people are feeling like, I just can't keep living. I can't even, I feel overwhelmed. Peter says we are to cast all our anxiety on him. So anxiety is talked about quite a bit in the scriptures. And anxiety is one of the diagnoses that we'll talk about in three weeks. Corinthians, take every thought captive. So we're talking, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And so uh, dealing with thoughts and behaviors, all right, is in the scriptures. Um, I just want to help you understand where, like we've talked about some of the background of how people view things. But historically, there's a, there's a lot that, that, that it's helpful to understand. So the word psychology literally means the study of the soul. <laughs> Right? That's literally what it is. I think we're all psychologists here. <laughs> Seriously, aren't we? We study the soul. Ours, we help other people with theirs. Okay, what psychopathology means, the suffering of the soul. So the word psychopathology usually means when someone has a disorder or a dysfunction, meaning they have... Uh, one of the names, and we're going to talk about the DSM in a minute here, one of the mental disorders that is written under the DSM or the ICD codes, which is an international code. Um, so they have a disorder. Well, the word psychopathology means suffering. Of the, well, we get that, right? So we are all psychopathological, aren't we? Sometimes, though, the suffering 
makes life really difficult. It's hard to function, right? So that's when often people do need some extra care. Jesus understands the suffering of the soul. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You know, it helps me to know that he felt that way. When I am crying to the point of just feeling like I, I, I've been there, we, I get there. I had a prayer time yesterday that was just, oh, just gut-wrenching emotional with me and God. And it's painful, some of the things that we have to go through and some of the emotions that we feel. And Jesus goes, yes, sit with me, because I, yes, I get that. I was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Okay, so we do know that not only do the scriptures address mental health, but Jesus himself can understand the challenges that we have internally with life. Um, so how would we define it? Well, ancient, in ancient cultures, this is how they saw psychopathology. It was all attributed to gods, to nature, to wind and fire and all the elements. If you look at ancient texts, Anybody had any kind of what today we might call depression or we might call, um, you know, a manic episode or something anywhere in those realms, uh, any of it, they would say it was an issue with the gods and the elements. Uh, in the medieval period, it was viewed as something to do with demonic forces, demons, magic, witchcraft, the devil, superstitions, or religious spiritual forces causing the mental problems. So they were demon-possessed. Was, that's when uh, the, the, the witchcraft trials, the witch trials were happening during that period. Um, then you've got the 1300s to the 1700s where they started actually learning about the brain and the body. Um, they started learning about nerves. They actually, are in that period, discovered the, the first understanding of nerves. So then they started going, oh, if I pinch you, it causes this. So really, all of these psychological things that people are going through is just about their body. It's, so it's a mechanistic view. Um, nerves, muscles, the conduction through the nerves. They actually had, so phrenology, can I touch your, your scalp, is where you would meet with a phrenologist and they would go, ah, you have this problem because your scalp is formed this way and it didn't last very long, but actually all the major big people, many of the major big people, um, both in Europe and in America, would go to phrenologists. And it was kind of like palm reading, honestly. But um, this is, you ought to, that's the term, you ought to have your head examined. That's what it's from. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's funny, historically. Um, so then we come into the 19th century, and that's where they started researching, measuring, counting, having experiments, doing statistical analysis. So we come into quantification in the 1900s, and that's where we are currently. And we're honestly, we are almost all of those now, uh, including one and two. Um, naturalism, so that was the Renaissance to now which is where they start, so this is Darwin's period, they started paying attention to evolution, the comparison, they started doing studies comparing animals to humans, which is absolutely what we are doing currently. Um, they started looking at inherited characteristics, which we talk about a lot with genes, and they started paying attention to child development. So then they start paying attention a little bit more to environment, right? 
Um, but with the humanity, and that's when the asylums started where they would, they would say, we need to bring them all into one place and give them, uh, and study them and help them change. So that's when the asylums were put together. Then in the, also in the early 1900s, you had the reform movement. So this was suffragette movement. This was all kinds of movements were happening in the early 1900s. And so they started paying attention to social causes and it was causing it was reflected in the psychology movement where they started using more about education. We started learning a lot more and using education to help people um, where they started realizing they actually started looking at these people in asylums and that these asylums were filthy and dangerous. And they started saying, this isn't going to help people. And they started giving them different and new environments and that they found people radically changed when they changed their environment. And uh, they started really paying attention to what would be considered humane care. Now, this is across the board historically. Um, and now, currently, we do have very, very, all of those. So the scientific study of mental disorders, you have um, an understanding of psychiatric deviation from normative behavior. What that means is we have a better understanding of what might be considered normal and what might be considered problematic. And then we, we also are studying the brain quite a lot. Actually, San Diego has one of the greatest areas of brain research happening in the world. Um, the thing is, who, who decides what's normal? <laughs> Most research is based on white individuals. I'm just saying it. Race affects research. We will often pathologize something that has nothing to do with pathology and is more of a cultural difference. So we need to pay attention to some of the stuff you're reading is, is not based on all of us. And we as a family want to help the family. So we need to pay attention to that because what's considered normal might be normal for that group, but not for that group. So who defines what's pathology and what's a deviation? It's very affected by political forces, by social forces. We just need to know and pay attention to that. So today we've got Freud and psychoanalysis, and like early on, he was um, <clears throat> in the 1900s. Behaviorism is where you're paying attention to um, behaviors. <laughs> uh, and, and so all of the type of therapy was behavioral. Then you had humanism, where you're saying the value of the person. This is all through the 1900s. It slowly starts developing. Cognitive behaviorism is where you're paying attention more to thoughts. And then came the movement that I have a degree in, which is family systems, where you're paying attention to society and family dynamics. And then now what you would call the biopsychosocial model, which actually as a disciple we would call it the biopsychosocial spiritual model, where you're actually paying attention to all those different aspects. Okay? So that's just historically. With the DSM, um, I'm going to go into that. So really what is a diagnosis? It's the process of determining what is a disease? What is the disorder? What is the dysfunction? So that is what the word diagnosis means. Do you have, so what you would do in the doctor's office is you would stick a needle in and you would pull out some blood and you would go measure it. We can't do that with uh, psychology. But so it's determining by examination, by asking questions, what someone's going through and then giving it a name. Um, so you do the examination. You might use medical examinations, you might find out about their background uh, medically. You're going to do some different screenings. You're going to answer some questions or someone's going to answer questions about you if you're a minor. And they're going to look at signs and symptoms. So this is how now we make a diagnosis is we look at the signs and symptoms. We do some examinations and some screenings 
and then we use the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It is quite large. It has lots of categories. Um, and in there, what they've done is they've taken these signs and symptoms. So you're not eating well. You are not sleeping well. You're crying a lot. And you don't have much of a drive to go to work. You're having, finding it really hard to get up. You're taking all of those symptoms and you're grouping together and you're calling that depression. So men took those signs and symptoms, grouped them together, gave it a name. Diagnosis is merely a name that describes a group of symptoms. It does help because then with another professional, I can say, oh, so her diagnosis is depression. And you will immediately know possibly what the different symptoms are that they're dealing with. So it aids in communication and it aids in treatment. Because if I know that this person has a depression diagnosis, there are going to be certain forms of treatment that are going to be most helpful for somebody with that diagnosis. But it is a man-made term for a grouping of symptoms. So it's just important to know that. Um, what is it? Well, the American Psychiatric Association creates it. So it's important. The Psychiatric Association is one entity in all of the United States, and it decides what we call a disorder or a dysfunction. So that's pretty powerful because it decides whether your insurance covers it now. <laughs> it does. Because the new DSM came out four years, five years ago, 2013, and it changed the diagnostic categories in a, in a few significant ways. So... It wasn't supposed to be for that. Actually, the early, DSM, the early DSM, if you ever read Von van der Kolk's work called uh, The Body Keeps the Score, he was involved in the early DSM. And they purposely said it should never be used for diagnoses or payment. And what do we use it for now? Both, right? So the DSM says it's a diagnostic criteria to identify symptoms, behaviors, cognitive functions, personality traits, physical signs, syndrome combinations, and durations. This is really like long, but that require clinical expertise to differentiate from normal life variation to transient responses to stress. So what is, this is normal. You just had a death in your family, and so you're going through this. And you know what? This is kind of crossing into some really challenging behaviors that's making it hard for this person to function, and they're a little outside the normative, so maybe they need some extra help. Um, just historically, I'm going to just run through this. In 1840, they did a census, and they came up with the first manual, and these were the two diagnoses. <laughs> Idiocy and insanity. Well, there you go. Isn't that funny? Right. You're either an idiot or you're insane. 1880, they did a new census. They come up with seven categories in this one. And they are, and here you're hearing our names now, mania, melancholia, monomania, parasis, dementia, dipsomania, and epilepsy. So this is where you almost can't tell where's the physical and where's the psychological, right? They're majorly overlapping there. Then in 1918, you get the, an early manual call it, by the American Medico-Psychological Association, which is now the APA, and they, they put together a statistical manual. So they start, again, we're starting to measure, right, historically. We're starting to measure and use, and they, uh, they use it for the institutions for the insane, so it's only used for a small part of the population. But look how many categories. Now we've gone to 22. 
All right, and it's based on Kraepelin's, he's a German psychiatrist. 1949, the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases, and the World Health Organization publish a book, and it's the first time where they include psychiatric disorders. The ICD was only medical disorders previous to that. So then they start including psychiatric disorders, behavior, intelligence, and so on, and then... In 1952, America gets in the game and puts together the DSM-1. So just a couple of years after the international one. And it's mostly theoretical initially, so they don't have a lot of diagnoses. Uh, the medical community was not happy with it. Uh, again, medic and let me tell you, I work in both communities, the psychological community and the medical community, and man, do they fight. Um, it was very Freudian, the very first one, and there were two categories. Organic brain dysfunction and socio-environmental stressors. So it's your brain or it's your environment. And those are the two areas that can be problematic. Um, and so it affects. What they said was that the stress affects their constitution, meaning how they're living and their ability to adapt to different pressures. Then the 1968, you get the DSM-2. Look at that. 182 categories. Okay, so now we're like, this is a diagnosis, this is a diagnosis, this is a diagnosis, this is a diagnosis, right? Um, that's where you hear the term neuroses, which is from Freud. And then you get um, all these different categories. We only had two categories before. Now we have a bunch of different categories. And now um, we can go see a psychiatrist and figure out which one we fall under. And we want to figure out, is this something that's just briefly uh, changing for you? Or is it a psychotic issue that's just overwhelming and you don't know how to deal with stress and so we need to get you some extra help? All right, then we have the DSM-3, 1980. Um, at this point, they're now cognitive behavioral. It's moving away from Freud and psychoanalysis and all of that. And uh, you, you, it's reflected in the manual. Um, there now is 265 categories. This is when we add PTSD and ADHD. It's actually called ADD initially. Why did we add PTSD in 1980? What had just happened? The Vietnam War. The Vietnam War had a huge impact on the DSM because we started to understand trauma. We understand trauma a lot more now than then, and we've uh, expanded the trauma categories in the DSM. I say we like I helped write it. Um, <clears throat> They did remove homosexuality and added egodystonic homosexuality. So sexuality has been, has had a love-hate relationship all throughout the DSM. Uh, then we start seeing pharmacology. So medications become super big at the late 1900s, 1980s and on. And then there's the concern that, um, that now because of the medications, psychology is all about giving a drug. So we're concerned about that now. That concern's been around for almost 40 years. Yeah, so the DSM was a bestseller. Because now anybody can buy it and, what am I? And, you know, when I train students, I'm like, you're going to find yourself in all of these pages. And then you're going to try to diagnose every family member that you have. Okay, so the, the DSM-4 came out in 94, 297 diagnoses, and now they've bumped up the research big time by then. We do, they've done literature reviews, empirical basis for disorders, and they do, so empirically-based treatments, evidence-based treatments, you start hearing the language big time in 94. 
Uh, they remove homosexuality entirely. Uh, they include distress, impairment, and functioning. Personality disorders have been in there for a while at this point. They do change them. And now, this is the DSM-5. It came out in 2013. They include what they call a lifespan or developmental perspective. So, uh, for those of you who would hear of Asperger's, and now it's under autism, what they did is they put them all under the autism spectrum disorder. It's even called the autism spectrum disorder. So it goes, it covers this gamut of behaviors. The problem is, is then you're going to end up with some very scared parents who didn't know that their kid had autism. The only thing that changed was the name. It's really important to pay attention to that, is that this, this is somewhat politically involved. It is research-oriented, but it's people putting different and shifting different names. It was very distressing for anybody in the community for child development. This, the new DSM was very distressing, but then for others, very helpful, because all of a sudden, they're now getting insurance coverage for the issue that their child has. So there's pluses and minuses, right? Um, Definitely the big focus was clinical assessment and treatment. They had a bunch of new classifications. They renamed some. So if you were, if you were told you had dysthymia, it got changed to persistent depressive disorder. So there were name changes, but then the symptoms were kept the same. And it goes, all of them go from mild to moderate to severe. They start, they used rating scales and they talked a lot more about genetics and neuroscience. And they did, they did say, we're not going to be involved with the pharmaceutical companies. But it was one of the biggest things that came out afterwards is that almost everybody involved in the new DSM was involved with, with a pharmaceutical company. So is that good or bad? You know, psychopathology is considered just on the continuum of normality, which was a new idea that you can go from normal to really dysfunctional and you might be somewhere in between. So again, it's the span. But the problem is then you're going to be diagnosing people with a label that maybe they would have been under the normal, normal label before. So I'm just showing you <laughs> the book that your therapist or psychiatrist or psychologist might use has changed dramatically over time. We just need to be aware of that because we're not quite sure what to do with diagnoses. I love this. Shut off your cell phone, your GPS, your iPod, and your Bluetooth headset, and then let me know if you still hear the voices. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> what is it? Is it dysfunction? And I have zero idea what time it is right now. 10:17, so we have 30 minutes. Okay. Um, so, as a disciple, how do we interact with all of these things? What would be a disciple's faithful approach? You know, we've just got to understand God, this is a, when we grieve and when we're struggling, He grieves with us. I love this. Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Surely he has borne our grief. His soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. If you are going through something or someone comes to you to talk about something, one of the greatest things they need is just the arms around them saying, oh, goodness, that sounds hard. Because it is hard. Whatever the reason is that someone's struggling with something, it's hard. And God's heart goes, ah. Uh. You know, in Luke 7, Jesus sees the woman 
whose son, it's her, the funeral for her son. She's the widow of Nain. The funeral's going by, and it says, Jesus' heart went out to her. It actually means in the Greek, splagnochia, which means his guts were moved. His whole being went, oh, when he saw her pain. That is the greatest need that we have to respond to challenges with mental health, is to have that gut-level empathetic response. God grieves, you know, sit with people in how hard it is. Um, You might need somebody to sit with you in how hard it is. It's hard. So these are some scriptures that guide the work that I do. This is just me and some of my teaching. I love this. Um, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, and a man of understanding draws them out. We need that, and we need to give that. And the God is that, <laughs> you know. We need to be drawn. Isn't that a great scripture? We need to be drawn out. So if you are somebody supporting somebody with challenges, draw them out. Each one needs to be convinced in his own mind. So if you try to force somebody to change something and they're not really there yet in their own convictions, it's not going to be very helpful, right? Have you ever felt like you're like, you know, banging your head against the wall? Well, sometimes you just have to give people time to build their own convictions and be convinced in their own mind. Um, This helps me. Mark 7 and Mark 8. I was like, I'm a therapist, and sometimes I'm dealing with people that aren't, most of the time, I'm dealing with people that aren't disciples. Can I really help them? Because I know they need the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I know they need the Bible. I know they need discipling and the kind of relationships we have. I know that, but can they be helped? This is a really honest, good question. And I settled in my heart with Jesus healed people and helped people that may or may not have ever ended up following him. He healed the deaf and blind. So this helped me as a therapist because for a while, and I've talked to people who who are disciples who go into therapy and they're like, why am I even doing this? I know this doesn't really, and it's true. I know it doesn't really help people be have the kind of peace of mind and the kind of joy that only following Jesus can give. But I can still help heal some of their diseases, if you want to call it that, because <laughs> the books do. And so that really helps settle my heart, that I can be helpful, and then I can pray that God will open up their heart to want to know him. And um, I've had the joy of seeing some of that happen. Uh, Proverbs 4, 7, though it costs all you have, get understanding. We need to understand one another. Before we put a quick judgment on stuff, we need to draw out and understand. You know, Isaiah 58 talks about how if we get rid of the pointing finger, the result is a well-watered garden with springs that's waters never fail. We all want that life that's a gorgeous, thick, rich, right? In Psalms 23 says, you know, that he leads us to pastures, right? The green, lush environment. We need that. We want that. Isaiah 58 says the pointing finger gets in the way of that happening. So we need to make sure we're not pointing the finger and we need to help people when they are because that really gets in the way. Um, Luke 7 is the one I just read. We need to have a great empathy response to one another. You know, how do we keep the balance as disciples? I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. So that's what I pray, that I'll be what, what this person in front of me needs so that I can help them and then and possibly bring them to the road of salvation, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. I, I'm just throwing a bunch of scriptures on here. In other words, you know what? If it's helpful, 
then I think God's involved. <laughs> if it's if it's helpful, then it's good. Then amen. It's it, you know anything good is from God. I believe we can figure that out over time. Be careful that no one takes you captive. To the other side of it is that through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world, and not based on Christ. It's a very long-winded version of Colossians 2:28. The reality is we do have to guard against empty philosophies. There are lots of them in the world of psychology, and we've talked about that. If you, ask, if you lack wisdom, ask God. So if you're not sure what to do, either in helping someone or in getting help for yourself, ask God. He gives us wisdom and understanding and discernment. Turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. I love this last part. Don't just cognitively understand. Apply your heart to understanding. When you're, when you're helping others especially. So what are some mistakes that sometimes... Disciples can make. And let me tell you, we can make them. Sometimes, even as a, as a therapist, I might practice outside of my competence, but sometimes some of us practice outside of our competence. Where we try to do therapy. Or we try to be the all for somebody. But you, it might be outside of your competence. If someone's coming to you with needs, you need to start realizing when you aren't maybe the best. It doesn't mean you go, you know what, I can't help you go find somebody else. It means let me walk beside you as we go get you that additional care and support. And then let me be the person beside you as you're going through it. And I'll learn with you. So recognize when you're practicing outside. The whole, no gosh, right? I've already said that. All you need is the Bible. So it's either psychology or the Bible. We do this like or thing when maybe it might be an and so the dichotomous view means it's this or this. Um, if you're strong spiritually, you should not need. We, I mean, honestly, guys, it's been said from our pulpit. Okay? <laughs> so I'm not slamming anybody that said it because hopefully they've learned that. I think all of us in some ways, many of us have said that. Um, discipling is always enough. Discipling is the most awesome thing on the earth. I am grateful. I actually just spoke at The Rock I teach at all the big churches here in San Diego. It's so awesome. And whenever I teach, I teach, I sneak in all kinds of wonderful things about discipleship and repentance. And so, why? Because I believe in being a disciple, right? Um, But sometimes we need some extra care, and it's okay to go and get it. We can, and then we don't really know what to do with medication. We're going to talk about that in a future class, but we swing. It's always okay. It's never okay. It's always okay. It's never, you know, maybe it's not one of the extremes, right? Or we, you always need to go see a therapist. Well, never see a therapist is bad. So we, that's the, that slide that I talked about earlier where we can embrace all of it to the extent of ignoring the other parts of someone's life as a disciple. So what have I heard people say? Well, this is about depression. You're just making excuses. You're such a party pooper. (laughs) These are actual phrases that some of our brothers and sisters have made towards our brothers and sisters. These are literal phrases that have been said in our fellowship. About anxiety, you just need to calm down. You just need to chill. It's not that big a deal. Right? That, yeah, that helps a lot, doesn't it? Or about suicidal ideation or suicidal attempts. You're just look, trying to look for attention. You're being manipulative. Well, yeah, you have a history of this. 
we can make, as a family, very blaming statements. And we need to change this because it's super damaging to the individual struggling with these things. And so if that has been your is you, do some growth around this. Do some education. Grow in your understanding. You're at a class like this, right? Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Look at this. Uh, write down on your piece of paper, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and I'm going to read them out loud to you. <clears throat> and you're going to give yourself a score. Strongly agree, disagree, not sure, agree, or strongly agree. Okay, so you're going to tell, you're going to write down next to each number if you disagree strongly, if you only disagree, if you're not sure, if you agree, or you strongly agree. So the first one is, I can recognize a person with a serious mental health challenge. So write down something after that. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. Just write down if you agree, disagree, strongly, or not. Do you strongly disagree with that statement? Do you disagree with it? You're not sure? Do you agree? Do you strongly agree? All right, second one. I believe that persons with mental health challenge are often imagining their problems. Write down the answer there on what you think. Be really honest. Don't give what the right answer is. Be re what you think the right answer is. Be really honest. So let me read it again. Number two is, I believe that persons with a mental health challenge are often imagining their problems. Number three, you're going to give yourself strongly disagree to, dis to agree. I believe there is a biological or physical basis for mental health challenges. Give yourself a score on that. I believe, this is number three, there is a biological or physical basis for mental health challenges. Anywhere from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Number four, I would encourage a church member to stop taking medication for a mental health challenge in favor of seeking spiritual healing. I'll read that again. I would encourage a church member to stop taking medication for a mental health challenge in favor of seeking spiritual healing. Number five, I believe that a church member often lacks faith when they're going through a mental health challenge. Be really honest as you answer this. Would you write down strongly disagree, disagree, not sure, agree, or strongly agree? That's number five. Yep, I'll read that one again. Number five is, I believe that a church member often lacks faith when they are going through a mental health challenge. That's number five. And sorry, next time I'll print them out for you. That would be much better. Number six, I believe that persons with a serious mental health challenge could be possessed by demons. Number six is, I believe that persons with a serious mental health challenge could be possessed by demons. Number seven, I believe church members usually feel more comfortable receiving pastoral counseling, meaning seeing a minister and talking about it, than going to a mental health professional, like a therapist. So this is number seven. I believe church members usually feel more comfortable receiving pastoral counseling than going to a mental health professional. Okay. Let's see what the rest of the world put. And you compare what you put and look at their answers. 65% said they agreed that they could recognize a person with a serious mental health challenge. And what's important about that is these are all from ministers. This was actually a study that was done with ministers where 60% said, I think I could recognize it. Okay, so the positive about that is that they're looking. 
The negative might be that they might miss it. <laughs> okay, the second one is I believe that um, somebody with mental health is often imagining. 55% said disagree. What's important is 11% weren't sure, 6% agreed, and about 1% said they strongly agree. So that's about 17, so around, say, 20% would say, I do think they might be imagining it. So we need to examine, you know, our thoughts, right? Um, I be- number three, I believe there's a biological basis. And they found, so 56% said yes. This is hugely affected by all that history that we looked at. It could be. We are still trying to figure it out. So there's not a right or a wrong here. I'm just saying that we are influenced by the beliefs of our culture now, that biology is involved, okay? Over here, you've got about 4% that are saying nope and about 20% that aren't sure, okay? So where do you fall? You just want to, this is just an opportunity to examine your beliefs around mental health. Number four says, I would encourage a member to go off their medications, a 53% strongly disagree, 27% disagree, so that's a, about an 80%. But you still have 10 to 20% that aren't sure. So we need to know that. Okay, these are ministers answering this. Uh, number five, uh, a church member is lacking faith. That's the same percentage, almost exactly, 80%. So you've got another 10 that are saying, I don't think that's the case. Um, I believe that people uh, uh, can be possessed by demons. So we've got a 30% agree, 27% not sure. We've got about a 20, it's got about a 50-50 split on that one. Could demons be involved? Again, this isn't a right or a wrong. This is just an opportunity to examine your own beliefs. Um... And then the last one, number seven, I believe church members would find it easier to talk to a minister, 50% agree. So you got about a mm, 60, like only 10% would disagree. Um, I will tell you that the majority of people that come in to see me say, I actually feel more comfortable talking to you because you're not going to tell anybody else. I have a law that says I can't talk to anybody else. Right? And let me tell you, there's a huge plus to that. I'm not even saying bad on the minister or bad on you for getting advice about how to help somebody. I'm just saying sometimes it helps to see somebody that you know cannot say anything to anybody else. And they better hold to that one. I'm going to pass these other two, and you can ask me for them because they'll do some more exploring. But the reality is... We're not quite sure, right? This just kind of explores that we're not, we're ourselves not quite sure what we think. And that's going to affect how you respond in the way you view your own mental health, and it's going to affect how you respond to other people. Um, so, somebody gets baptized and they're fixed, right? <laughs> the waters of baptism has washed their sins away, and now all that anxiety and depression and whatever is all gone. Wouldn't that be great? All that distrust and guilt and anger and hurt and low self-esteem all magically disappear. All you need to do is repent and get over it and move on. We do this really well. Good job. You forgave mom. It's all good. Good job. You forgave your spouse. It's all good. 
good job. You know, we do that in a lot of ways. Your disciples all over, right? So you're done. Forget. Oh boy, we, we'll get into this later. You just need to forgive everybody. Like that's. I do think the Bible says we need to forgive, but we can use that as a blaming, shaming thing. You just need to forgive. We can. We can. After baptism, we can do the whole give pat answers, give cliches, give tried explanations, be clueless about the challenges they might be going through. We have to be really wise. You might have gotten some of those. You might have been the one receiving pat answers, cliches, tried explanations. <laughs> they might be clueless. So we need to grow. We need to be patient with one another through the process of growing. Uh, so just a little bit on rejoice always. Um, this is some of the phrases. We sometimes think that becoming a disciple is a vaccination against disorders of mental health. You know, like now that I'm a disciple, I will never struggle with this again. It's just not true um you can actually listen ray is not here uh you can ask me and i'll send you something but the shapiros did a great job in the um conference that we had the living water conference talking about this piece in more detail um we need to be aware we've already talked about this if i were a better disciple if i just prayed harder if i had better quiet times but then it You know, it doesn't pay any attention to the possible biological factors involved. We're not quite sure what's involved, and we'll go into that in more detail later. We're not quite sure. We're still learning. But our bodies have a big part in our mental health, and we need to sometimes figure out a few things. So to just say, if you just prayed more, do we need to pray? Yes, we need to pray. Oh, come on. Say that louder. Do we need to pray? Yes, we need to pray. (laughs) Do we need discipling? Yes. If you're not in a discipling relationship, then you'd better get in one. (laughs) Okay. i sorry I didn't finish my story. I was at The Rock, and I was teaching this class. And afterwards, I had a couple who were leaders there and a couple that um, were mentoring under them. And they asked him, or they said, I, I was describing my discipling relationships with my husband. And I said, uh, we got married and we got off the plane from our honeymoon and the couple that picked us up, well, we had premarital counseling and then at the honeymoon, the couple that picked us up then discipled our marriage every week, well, daily probably, for the whole next year. And since then, we have had the first 15 years of our marriage, we got with somebody every week. For the last 10-ish years of our marriage, we've been getting with somebody about every other week. That is the level of help we've had in our marriage for the last, we're going to hit 25 years in about two months. And so this woman and her husband are talking to this other couple, and she turns to the, to the, uh, the leader and says, we should make that a requirement. And I said, kind of laughing, I said, actually, it is a requirement. Scripturally, I think it's more an issue of obedience. Okay. The reality is, there are all kinds of interesting ways I get to share my faith. But what am I saying? How are we doing on this? Are we obeying that one another, all those one another scriptures. Do we have people involved in our lives? We do need discipling. I love how the, the Shapiros deal with a couple different things. When you look at the man who was born blind, and in 2 Corinthians 12, the Shapiros talk about this in their book, about how disease, in both of these situations, the disease occurred independent of sin. 
independent of sin, for the sole purpose of glorifying God, the guy born blind, right? So we need to stop the shaming things and say there might be some lessons to learn when someone's struggling with something, whatever it is. Now, on the other side, we also need to be aware that if we rely too much on doctors, it can be problematic. So this was one of the kings in Second Chronicles. It says, though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he didn't seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. So one of the things that we can, this is the swinging that we can do as a church, is we give so much weight to the professionals. And let me tell you, I work with them. I teach with them. I've been in school with them. And a good chunk of them, I would never have my child go ask input from. (laughs) Okay. So there are professionals whose lenses, the things they believe, are problematic. So there's this, again, discern, discern, pray for discernment when you're seeking help, whether it's for a medical issue or a mental health issue, right? So there is this balance that we can strike. I love this. Um, Even the disciple who suffers from one of these biologically based psychiatric disorders is not absolved from the responsibility of putting his or her challenge into a spiritual context and learning how to stay faithful to God. This is a real gift that the Shapiros have brought the church. As they, and we're going to step through some of their stuff. But what are some very practical ways that a disciple of Jesus needs to rely on God through the mental health challenge? So should somebody, and we're going to go over those, but should somebody seek therapy? Well, what are some of the benefits? There's all kinds of laws, like I said, that say I can't talk to somebody. So it is very safe in that way. Uh, You have to keep under ethics and HIPAA compliance. Um, Therapists are objective, sort of. (laughs) They're qualified, hopefully. Um, They're experienced. They're not supposed to be reactive. Well, sort of, because they can be. You can receive a diagnosis. Mm, You know, that may be good or not good. Um, you're going to get support, you're going to have a treatment plan, and I tell you, the number one reason I tell people is that you get to have the focus all on you for a whole hour. People literally call me their paid friend. And I'm like, I'll take that. If I can be supportive to you by just being that for you for that hour. The reality is therapy in and of itself, so the question on should we, we're going to address that more later, but there are a lot of huge benefits to going and getting personalized. I get your attention for a whole hour. Um, What can you do in the meantime for somebody wondering? Well, you can give support. You can give referrals. You can help them have a stronger support network. You might be the person needing these, more support, more of a support network. Um, Being in a group, a small group, is huge. Being in group therapy is huge. Um, Go to sessions with them. If you're somebody that's supporting somebody with those challenges, maybe you can join them in going to a session um, if the therapist works that way. But basically, any affirming and supporting of whatever help they're getting is huge. Also, it's not just the individual needing care most of the time. The family also needs care with whatever issue they're challenged with, whether it's suicide depression, anxiety, whether it's drug and alcohol, sexuality, it doesn't affect just the one person. So, you know, if it's a spouse and their partner has depression, let me tell you, it affects the spouse. And that spouse needs support too. 
huge, big time. So if someone has lost someone to suicide, it's not just the, the individual, obviously, that was in great trauma, but the whole family is affected. So, or if someone has suicidal tendencies, it impacts, right? So whatever the challenge is, usually it's not just the person that needs support. It's all those around them. So what's your job? This is for you individually, and it's for you to help people with, is make sure that they're having a good spiritual walk, Make sure that they're having good fellowship. We're going to talk about all of these some more. Make sure that they're in a good discipling relationship. Consider if you can become any kind of collaboration with, other ther- with their therapist, um, helping them make decisions about therapy or medication. And yes, all of these other preventatives are huge. Movement, exercise, hobbies, nutrition, All of these things are vital. So there's a lot of ways you can help people. It's not just go to a therapist and go on a medication. There's a zillion other ways that's important to be supportive and help them with the other areas of their life. So obviously, the biggest thing is having a deeper understanding of who God is. This is the number one thing I tell people, (laughs) is who is he? How does he feel about you? And how does he see you? Who is he? Not just what does he do, What's he like? What's his character like? Years ago, I studied my Thompson chain. And if you go into the Thompson chain, you just look up God. It has a whole page of his characteristics. And the Thompson chain has like 20 scriptures for each word. And I spent, I don't know, forever studying that. Well, I just rebought a Thompson chain and I'm doing it. I've been doing it for the last few months. And it's just like, I feel like a kid in a candy shop. Like, oh, just remembering over and over scripturally. What's he like? What's his heart? I need to know him. Who is he? I love this. Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Because you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you. Jesus in exchange for you. So don't be afraid. I am with you. I love this scripture. He's going to be with us through it. We need to know. Look at his heart here. Look at his heart here. I love Psalm 18. The cords of death entangled me. Destruction overwhelmed me. I cried out to God. And look what God did. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. He became angry. Smoke came from his nostrils. He mounted the cherubim. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is the heart of God that we need to recognize. Okay? So watch your diagnosing. Don't avoid people who have mental health problems. Watch your your blaming statements. Watch the shaming. So... I'm going to go over these another time, but basically, this is a fun thing we'll do later. Basically, come and keep learning because we we need to learn how to rely on God through the challenges, and we don't have to do an either or or. So, good morning. See you later. Well, that is a very good question. Today was a little bit more of an introductory. How about we do this? If you need to leave, go for it. And then we'll go ahead and do a question and answer. Let's do about five-ish minutes, yeah, just to keep it as close to the time as possible. So go ahead and ask any questions. Yes. 
that come through. Right, making so people stumble. In the, the slide you talk about incompatibility between the psychology and yes. the Bible. I do believe that environment does have an impact. Huge. On it. Yeah, we have the responsibility to set boundaries and not allow the environment to affect us. Cause right. Because James 1 talks about how you can't blame God for your, for your yes. temptations. So, so there is in the Bible speaking yes. about the environment has it having an impact. Huge. And so, of the fool, the oh my gosh, who we spend time with. And what we watch and what we listen to and, and who we're around and what we allow into our life, environment has such a huge piece. So it's not incompatible. No. It's, it's actually a huge part of what... No, see, so in the new DSM, if you'll notice, one of the things we talked about is that they included that a lot more in the actual diagnosing process. But I think the Bible actually got that right a lot earlier. <laughs> Psychology is embracing it more right. and should be. Yep. Yes. Oh, my email is jenniferconzen at yahoo.com. My name at yahoo.com. Yes. Amen. Well, I, you know, obviously part of it is what you're doing just by coming to something like this is just educating yourself so that then when you sit with that person in all of your empathy and care and love, you can also bring in some understanding that can guide them. So I think, honestly, the more that we, we learn, but honestly, sometimes the greatest person to learn from is the person you're talking to is draw them out and find out what their process has been like, what are they thinking, what, is, what have people told them, what is their therapist sharing with them, what, is the, what did the psychiatrist say, what did they learn in their class. You know, honestly, that drawing out part is huge. But then, if people have questions, have them ask. Like, you might be the person helping others. Find somebody reliable that you feel like has their, their, their input grounded well, and ask a question. So I think that I think the, the learning thing needs to be constant. Yes, Gigi. How do you work with children where you don't want to shame them for the challenges that they're having and you want to teach them about the real battle that it can be? The reality is they, they aren't exclusive. This challenge with whatever they're having in school, at home, it's not exclusive of the spiritual battle. Often what happens, though, is we tie them together. This, this thing you're dealing with is sin related it is the spiritual battle when it might not be and so it's when we tie them together that it can be it can feel blaming i think the main thing is especially with children teach them who god is god is big enough that's my newest phrase god is big enough 
He is big enough. And so we should be teaching the character of God since the moment they can speak. And that that's the biggest thing to help kids learn because he's going to, I love that Isaiah scripture. He will walk through the waters with you. So on the clinical end, that's going to be age appropriate. How much you explain is going to change as they go. There's a real issue with how much we're medicating kids. And so with are we actually getting them the help they need? Um, we're going to talk some more about that as we go because it's, it's challenging. We're, we're not sure as a society how to deal with uh, how, what's too much, what's not right for kids. But the reality is talking to them openly is a huge part, but that's going to change age-wise. What you're going to talk to a 4-year-old about versus what you're going to talk to a 10-year-old about is going to be radically different. Yes? Right. Is there a mentoring group for people who are in the field? Who are in the field? Yes. But, yeah, with also sound doctrine, because I right. believe it is a combination, but I have to process this all so much myself. Yeah, huge. Yeah. So we're kind of in the process. Um, we do have a conference now. <coughs> so we had the first annual conference. Uh, Greg Morutsky put it on this last August. And anybody can come. So you can learn from disciples in the mental health field for a whole weekend every year now. Greg Moretzi put it together. It's in Antelope Valley. It's in August. Um, uh, send me a note and I can tell you the dates. It's for us to get the support we need. I felt like, I was like, oh, I'm with disciples who are mental health practitioners. This is so encouraging. It was so relieving to be with everybody. We were joking. We we're just having this for us. Those of us who planned it, there were 12 of us. And we were like, this is, if nobody else comes, we're all happy. Well, there was actually 75 of us there. Um, so it was ministers as well. And then anybody could come. So that's going to be huge. And then from that, we're trying to create more of that. We've been trying to for years, actually. So we should talk some more about how to have the regular ongoing support. But that's a huge one. I mean, I was meeting with sisters who were been practicing for 20 years, and their husband's an elder. And I'm like, oh, I have so many questions for you, right? So we need that support. Okay, just, uh, oh, I will answer your questions as long as you like. So just feel free to go. Yes. Oh, I can't answer your questions. So I'm going to answer one more. All right. Yes. So I appreciate when you said that um, uh, that you're, I guess when you're not doing well spiritually can affect mental health. When yes. You're suffering from mental health it can affect. So I have a person that is showing signs of depression, but is yeah. not having quiet times. Right. And so it's like. I don't right. know how to address it. Like, right. okay, well, let's have you have quiet times, and then hopefully right. if you still have depression, like... How so do this, one of the biggest things that that is important, is you can say it in a non-shaming way, you still have to obey. Even with depression, you still have to obey God. So how do you say that with going, you need to obey? You know, that's not going to be helpful. But that, I love, uh, so actually in the lesson that the Shapiros did... Um, she, Mary says, I tell people, and I just thought, what great input. She's like, okay, you're depressed, and it's hard to get out of bed, and so you don't want to go to church. You can't even get yourself out the door. So what she says is take a small step. Get yourself dressed. 
drive there, stay for five minutes, come home. Because we know that with depression, you have to move. So go, fellowship for five minutes, go home and get back in bed. So I really appreciated, and I, I agree with this, this small steps, small steps. Don't shove it on them, but go beside them through it. Okay, so it's hard for you to read the scriptures. Then how about, why don't, why don't, why don't we do like where you listen to five minutes of a sermon every morning and you pray? You know, like what's a small step you can make that gets you in the word? So People still need to obey, and I really appreciate I mean, the, the Shapiros were actually um, therapy, psychologists before they became Christians. And so it's really cool to see their evolution. And one of the things that they loved when they became disciples was, oh, yes, the Bible, Jesus, God. And, and they do a great job of explaining how you still have to help people to follow and obey even if they've got challenges with depression. So I'll stay. You can come and ask questions at any time. Thank you for coming. Yeah, you want me to show something here? Yeah. Which one? The one of what we should be doing. Ah. Uh, the what to avoid. This one? Yeah. That one? There was another one. That one? Yeah. There was another one on what to do to help people. Did you yeah. mean that? Okay. That was your job. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Hi, Mom. I have to leave. Okay. I, I love have you. have a winter formal today in Long Beach. <laughs> that's right. On the Queen Mary. Oh, have fun. Oh, that's the dress. Take pictures. I will, of course. I love you. It was very encouraging to see oh, my friend's smiling face. <laughs> <laughs> I told I told your daughter, she, and she gets to be my best friend. She goes, she gets to be my mom. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't it fun? <laughs> You're so cute. So, thank you. I love you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sonia. Thank you Hi. so much. But I'm here with, with Angelica. Oh, so yes. I kind of have the same. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to grab the mic. Yes, please. It's right up there. Okay. I think everybody has to leave out of here. Can I have Okay, please stop talking. I uh, want to get your attention. I, I've become aware that there is another group that is actually waiting to be able to use the facility. Oh. So if we could be respectful of them, pick up fellowship in the now, in the outside. So let's just grab stuff, and okay. I'll meet you in the. Okay, okay. all right. I'm gonna go stand out in the parking lot. Fantastic. Oh, amen. You're like my. My, my, I was like, oh, look who's here. <laughs> Just love you. Just should be mandatory. I know. Yes. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, it's working out. And I wanted to Amen. Amen. Yes, that would be great. I know that I barely used. Oh, you're Recipe. awesome. Sure. Wind stuff up and well, here I'll let you get the little cap on there. Yeah, so all the cores need to get taken off. Can I hand you the end of this one too? And there's the end of that one. There we go. This is theirs. Well, I didn't know we were so tight on time, so that's helpful to know. 
Those are all ours. Everything out here is ours. Yep. Take it out. And we can pack it in the lobby probably so they can get in here. Go ahead and turn this off. Yeah, just I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm still recording. Okay, you're awesome. Thank you. I love you. Do we have any takers? Not today. Okay. But that's okay. I think just the community. I hope yeah. that the community. So I asked um, Mary and them. I think I told yes. you, right? Yeah. Mary and them, because you know Monica. Right. Yeah, and so, and I, and they go, oh, we have a wedding today. We're not coming. Okay. But I encourage them to come. Okay. Good. And what I was gonna do, if you, if you don't mind me taking the liberty of translating the slides. Oh yeah. So they can look at. Oh them, my gosh. And then, that, and then they can. Can you take the liberty? So can and I? Then yes. They can kind of do the pre. You know, can at least look at oh, the slides for the yes. first session. Oh yes. 